Merry Christmas. It is, oh, am I on? Check. Am I on? Yep, I'm there. All right, good morning. Good morning to everybody here and to those joining us in the overflow. It is a blessing to have you here as well in the fellowship hall. Uh, I do long for the day when we will be able to all gather together, perhaps without masks, perhaps without social distancing, and be here together. I long for that day. How about you? Yes, 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 thank you. I know somebody is alive this morning. Yes, let's not lose that enthusiasm in the sermon, amen, amen. Let's, uh, the title of the sermon this week is Into All Truth, Into All Truth. I have water with me ready to jam because <clears throat> the AC does dry things out and as I said, allergies are not very fun. If history had a highlight reel, Perhaps like the, the National Geographic Gallery in the shops of Wailea. Anybody go in there before? They have all these beautiful pictures that are shot, intricate, high quality. It's almost as if you're there. If history had a highlight reel, it would have twin peaks. The first would be the incarnation of the Savior. The second would be the resurrection of the Savior, the Twin Peaks, the highlight reel of all history. As we sang, what a glorious mystery, once a babe in Bethlehem, now the Lord of history. What a fantastic hymn that was. This is the point in Christmas, being this week, literally all of history flows to and from. Even how we conceive our calendars flows to this point that Galatians 4 calls the fullness of time, that God sent forth his son, born of a woman. When you look at history books, you often see B.C. and A.D. to testify to the importance of the events that happened surrounding the birth of Christ. And so, it is a beautiful mystery that we take time to ponder this time of year. We have delved even deeper into this mystery these past few weeks. This is the fourth in a four-part series uh, on the doctrine of the Trinity, on the doctrine of the Trinity. We have uh, seen that famous line, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, that in the coming of Jesus, we see actually the Godhead, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. And so we have looked the past three weeks at the role of the Trinity, the triune God in the Christmas story. We have seen the role of the Father, the Son, the Spirit. We have spoken about the Council of Nicaea and the early church fathers. We have heard about the Athanasian Creed, and now today we will hear about our response. What is our response? This is what God has done to bring about this great work. What is our response to these things? Because they require a response of all of us. What does that response look like? That is the topic of this fourth sermon on this series. And so that's where we'll spend most of our time, our response. We could say this is, if we're in Paul's letters, we could say this is the great therefore part of Ephesians 4. This is the next letter moving into, as a result of these things, how ought we to live? 
And so let's do that. We will aim to move swiftly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I implore you to fill us with your spirit this morning. Guide us into all truth. May the words of John 16, the promise of Christ, that the helper who would guide us into all truth, would that promise be realized this morning in new ways. For some of us, if we've been believers for 50 years, may our hearts still be enthralled and awakened to these truths. And for some of us, these might be the first times we've heard these things. May you give us a divine apprehension and understanding insofar as we finite creatures are able to grasp the infinite God. Would you help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I really have about 10 points packaged down into three points because that is helpful. To, it's easier to remember three than it is to remember 10. But uh, it's actually more like nesting dolls. You're going to find three sets of three, uh, and then one, the last one will have uh, one more. So let's jam. Number one, he goes, but he gives. He goes, but he gives. This is coming from John 16. Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. So he's telling his disciples, I'm I'm telling you the truth. Listen to this. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Not I may, not I might, but I will send him if I go. So Jesus goes, but he gives. Let me give you some context here. This is John's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. This is the fourth gospel. This is John's take on the ministry of Jesus. And now we find ourselves in chapters 4 through 17. Jesus has gathered his disciples, his 12, and now he is speaking to them his last words before he is to be crucified. This is his farewell speech, so to speak. And you save your most important words for that final moment that you see somebody or that they think they're going to see you and you impress on them the importance, the weight, the the magnitude of what's about to happen. And, And what is Jesus doing here? He leaves them. He tells them, it's my time. My hour has come. It's been a good three years with you gentlemen. And as a result of his saying that I am going to leave back to the Father, his disciples are full of sorrow. They're sad. And he notes that at the beginning of chapter 16. You are full of sorrow. But he leaves them not with nothing, but he leaves them with the promise. He leaves them with a promise. We already heard this promise cracked open in chapter 14. He says, I'm going to send another helper to you. And so we're going to find that their sadness of these disciples is ever so apparent to Jesus, but his promise is ever so powerful to them to send a helper. I will send somebody. It's another helper like me. I don't know about you, But when I leave my children at the airport, it doesn't happen often, but uh, last year we had to take a trip, and we were away from them longer than we had ever been away from them. They're young. When I leave them for any extended period of time that's longer than a day or two, I don't tell them, Daddy's going to be back. I don't tell them that. 
I don't have the power to fulfill that promise. That's not my call to make. I don't know if the Lord's going to call me right then and there. I don't tell them I'm coming back. I tell them daddy's going to do everything he can to see you soon. That's what I tell them. Everything I can. I leave them with a promise. I'm going to do everything I can to see you. Look to God. But Jesus leaves them with a promise that he can fulfill. I will send the helper if I go. You will not be alone, and your sorrow will turn to joy. So even though I'm going away, he gives. He leaves him with a promise. Number two, see how we're moving through this quickly? His going is gain. Verse 7 again, I tell you the truth. Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. It is to your advantage. So Jesus said, and this is strange, and we don't have time to ponder the depths of this this morning, but he said, actually, I'm leaving, and I know you're sad, but you got to hear me. This is the truth that if I go, it's better for you. It's advantageous. It is profitable, more profitable for me or for you if I go than if I stay. Just imagine, you're the disciples, and he's like, I'm going. And you've just had the time, like world-changing experiences with this man whom you now worship and love, and you see he is the Christ, and he's leaving, and he says, I, I promise you it's better. It's to your advantage if I go. And why is that? In brief, his going means our gain because it is, it is replaced. He leaves us with the presence, the abiding power of his Holy Spirit. That's why it's gain. And because of the Holy Spirit of God, he can be with us in full measure at all places and all times, in every continent, in every jail cell, everywhere he can be with us. Was Jesus lying when he said, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age? The answer, absolutely not. Because now his presence is mediated by his spirit, the same spirit that raised him from the dead. His presence is with you through his spirit. See, in the incarnation, Jesus, the Son of God, was in a sense limited to two human feet in Jerusalem. Such that if you wanted to be near the Savior, you had to be in the Middle East. But now he is with all of us in full measure. And so Jesus can truly say, it is to your advantage if I leave. And so this going is their gain. Number three, what is the nature of this gain? This is number three. This gain is guidance, guidance until glory. Guidance until glory. That's the nature of this gain. Let's look at verses 8 through 10 and 13. He says, and when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged. Verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you things that are to come. 
So this going is guidance unto glory. His, this gain is guidance unto glory. The Holy Spirit of God will guide us into all truth. One of the ways he does that first is he convicts the world of sin. That is one of the functions, one of the ministries, you could say, of the Holy Spirit, is he convicts you of sin. That is that feeling that when you're doing something wrong, you have a little pierce in your heart, a little splinter in your mind, a little flash of yellow flash across your brain that says, I shouldn't be doing this. That is the Holy Spirit of God working in you, believer. And whenever you ignore that, you have another feeling called guilt. And that is you feel your sin and the Holy Spirit says repent. And you feel shame and the Holy Spirit says repent and come to me that you might find life and forgiveness and grace. And he convicts the world of sin. Don't ignore. Don't turn your heart from Don't stiffen your neck to the leading of the Holy Spirit. When you feel that, stop. Danger. Danger. He convicts the world of sin. He he convicts the world or he testifies to the world of righteousness. You see, Jesus died a death on a what? On a cross. Good people did not get killed on a cross. Criminals were killed on the cross. And so the death of Jesus was considered an unrighteous death. It was considered uh, a shameful way to die. And so it looked as if when Jesus died that his righteousness was blasphemed, that he was wrong. But at the resurrection of Christ, his righteousness was vindicated. The name of God was upheld. His glory was shown to be to all who saw. And so the Holy Spirit testifies of the righteousness of God in Christ and in raising him from the dead. And by contrast, when we preach the gospel, it shows how unrighteous we are. It shows how unrighteous we are in and of ourselves and how righteous God is. The third thing it does, the third ministry of the Holy Spirit is concerning judgment. He says, because judgment has already come into the world. Satan, the the ruler of this world, is judged. So quick question for you, is judgment coming or did it already happen? Hmm. Is it coming when Jesus comes again or did it already happen? Both. Both. It's coming And it has already happened because in Christ, the gavel has fallen. Sin is condemned. We could say the sentencing, the final arraignment and plea is coming. It is coming for all who do not repent and believe. But for those who do repent and believe, your judgment breaks into here and now. Praise God. Hallelujah. And then... He doesn't just take care of our sin. He doesn't just save us and redeem us and wash us and adopt us. He guides us into all truth. Praise God for that. For the guiding, illuminating, this is what this is called. This is called the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit. The illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes 
sometimes we use uh, inspiration language to describe this ministry of the Spirit when we really mean illumination language. And what do I mean by that? The Holy Spirit of God inspired, that's inspiration, the Holy Scriptures. They are God-breathed. And so when we read the words of, of John or when we read the words of Peter, we can say, God said because it's God's word. God spoke, and they recorded. This is the word of God, not the word of men. That's uh, inspiration. But he's talking about guiding into all truth, the illumination of the Spirit. And sometimes when we say God said, what we really mean is God is guiding me. He will guide you into all truth. He will direct you. He will lead you in a very real and palpable sense God's Holy Spirit leads his people. That is one of his ministries, as he leads you. He, you feel that convicting of sin. He's leading you to turn to him. You wonder, should I take this job or that job? He leads us through counsel, through providence, through his word. He illuminates our way for us. That is a very real and true ministry of the Holy Spirit that is living and active, and we experience this and walk in it. Praise God. It is a precious gift. It is powerful. It is palpable. And those who have experienced it knows when it has been reduced or quenched because of sin. That is, this going is gain and guidance unto glory. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so what is our response to these things? This is God working, leaving us with his Spirit now, let's get into our second set of three. This is now application. This is the therefore. What do we do as a result of these things? Number one, receive it and revel in it. Man, this truth is to be received and reveled in, celebrated, rejoiced. Consider this. Remember I said this is his farewell speech. John 14 to 16, his farewell, his final words, I'm leaving. And what is he talking to his disciples about? Do you know? He is giving them a lesson in theology. He is talking about the relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit over and over again in these three chapters. It's a lesson in theology. He's instructing them on the nature of the Trinity. But does he answer all the questions they would want answered? Not at all. He doesn't answer all the questions. He doesn't say everything there is to say about the Trinity. Why? Because this is truth. This is a mystery to be apprehended, not fully comprehended. He wants them to grasp it and to trust in it and to receive it, not to fully understand it. He even says in this passage, there are things that I can't say because you can't bear them this moment. And as we're talking about the doctrine of the Trinity, I don't know that we can bear it. It'll take an eternity for us to bear it because it is the very nature of God. John Wesley said it this way, the famed preacher, he says this, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man. Just think of what little worm. Bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and I will show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. 
He's saying it's just God is categorically different than we are. And so it is nearly impossible for our finiteness, our human minds, to comprehend the full nature of the triune God, just as it is a worm to comprehend a man. If I use scriptural language, that was John Wesley, I would go to Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So the first thing we do is to receive and revel in it, to celebrate it. Because revealed knowledge of God is not only meant to be studied by the mind, but to be embraced by the heart. So receive it and revel in it. And our celebrating revealed truth is what makes us different than demons. Think about that. Our celebration, our wholehearted embrace of truth from God is what makes us different than demons who believe very truthfully, but they reject. But they reject. That's number one, receive and revel. Number two, retain. Retain this great truth. Oh, KBC, we must guard the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We must contend for it. Let me ask you a question. I want you to think about the nature of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit that we call the Trinity. If this doctrine disappeared, would our church be different? Think about it. If this doctrine disappeared, would your life be different? And so we ask, is it essential? I would propose to you, absolutely. I would propose to you, everything would change. And I'm not alone in that. The early church saw this as essential to the gospel, a first order belief, first tier of the highest importance, not able to be compromised, not able to be negotiated, not able to be given even an inch. The early church saw it. The early church fathers saw it. That's why they contended for it at the Council of Nicaea, and others have been contending ever since, and it is being contested in our day. You heard the Athanasian Creed, what's known as the Athanasian Creed, who says, whoever would be saved must believe thus about God. That's an incredible statement. That's an incredible statement. Charles Spurgeon, fast forward from early church fathers to Spurgeon, and he said this, I quote, A gospel without belief in the living and true God, trinity in unity and unity in trinity is a rope of sand. Ah, count on Spurgeon for the colorful word pictures. A rope of sand is a gospel without a belief in the living and true God, our triune God. Consider the most famous verse in the Bible and its accompanying context, John 3.16, without the doctrine of the Trinity. It would make no sense whatsoever. This kernel of the gospel, for in this way, for God so loved the world that he sent, that he gave his son, his only son. You would immediately stop and say, 
Who is God? Who is the Son? What is the relation of the two? Is the Son a creature? Is he the triune God? How could a creature bear the full weight of eternity on himself if he was created? How You see, it just goes on and on and on. And what is the nature of the Spirit in John 3? This wind that blows from God and we know not how. How are we born again? How do these things happen? See, none of this. It's just We just looked at one verse and it crumbles. If you redefine God, if you say he existed in three modes, if you change, subtract, multiply, divide, add anything to this doctrine, the heart of the gospel crumbles. And beloved, that truth has been handed down to us. It has been handed down to us, and it is our time and our season to retain the truth once for all delivered to the saints and to pass it on to our children. And so at this time of year and in the years to come, I will teach my children the Father, Son, and Spirit, three and yet one. I hope you will do the same. We retain it. We revel in it. We reflect it, is number three. We reflect it in relationship. We reflect it in relationship. Like a mirror is how we were designed to be, image bearers of God. Now, I want you to think about this, this famous passage, Matthew chapter 1. She says, you will call his name, or they say, you will call his name Emmanuel, and it tells us what that word means. God with who? Me. Wait a minute. God with? us, you said it. It would be an error of massive proportions to say God with me. Because it's God, plural, corporate, God with us. And so we, a proper response to these things is to reflect the nature of the Trinity in relationship with others. It's not just me and God or God and I, but corporate identity is built into the incarnation, God with us. And surely this is part of what it means to be an image bearer of the triune God, that he created man, male and female, that we hear those words. It is not good for the man to be alone. The first not good in the Bible. It is not good for the man to be alone. We are meant to live in relationship with others. But we all know there's a problem, isn't there? In this fallen world, relationships can be messy, can't they? Relationships can be messy. I heard somebody say, I don't like to, I like to be alone, but I don't like to be lonely. <laughs> we want the best of both worlds because we realize relationships can be messy. But as one book says, relationships are a mess worth making. They are a mess worth making. We were created to be in relationship. And so we reflect this truth, this glory of the triune God in relationship. And we see that these relationships are to be united and diverse. Unity and diversity. Unity and diversity. One God, three distinct persons. Unity and diversity. 
If I could be allowed to, to bend outward just a little bit, uh, we'll call it an expositional bending out from our passage before us to John 17, where he prays the priestly prayer of Jesus to the Father, talking, and he says, I pray that they may be one, even as we are one. I pray that they would be one, even as we, Father, are one. And so we see the Lord's desire that we would be united in relationship. And this starts in the, the bare essentials, the lowest common denominator, the, the, the nucleus of the family. We spoke about this a little bit already in the marriage relationship. We want unity and diversity in the home. In the mystery of marriage, it says the two, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two become what? One. They are, in this mystery of a union, they are one flesh. It is the one flesh union. Yet, I am not my wife, and my wife is not me. We are distinct. Paul uses this exact analogy in 1 Corinthians 11 to describe marriage. See, marriage isn't just a reflection of Christ and the church, Ephesians 5. That's not the only thing it has to say. The scriptures have to say about marriage. Marriage is a reflection of the Godhead, our triune God. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. And so we want unity and diversity in the home. I propose to you that division in the home is no small thing. It is often one of the places Satan strikes first. And so if you are married, if you have a spouse, if you ever hope to have a spouse, hear me when I say this. You must pursue unity with your spouse. You must pursue unity with your spouse. Don't give up. Don't give in. Even better, don't be reactive. Be proactive in pursuing unity with your spouse. And don't ever hear me say, I have to say again and again, because in a crowd uh, of people this size and people who are watching, uh, I know there are, there are couples that go home, and what you see here, the smiling front is just a front, and you go home, and there are words exchanged that would shame those who speak it, if anybody else heard it. There are words who, that are exchanged that, that bring dishonor to God. Men say awful things to their wives. Wives say awful things to their husbands. And what we call, what can escalate into what we call domestic violence, don't ever hear me say, you will never hear me counsel that that is something that is God-honoring. And you will never hear me tell a woman and it is mostly women who are victims of domestic violence to just stay there and shut up. Just submit, just be quiet. You'll never hear that from me. And so I encourage you, if you are in that scenario, you need help. We're here to help you. But there's also many more who aren't there that would be categorized as domestic violence. You're just in a season of marriage where you can just get stuck. Things can just be hard. There's just tension. It's not, we're not doing anything crazy or illegal or, or anything like that. It, it's, we're just stuck. We're just butting heads and just rubbing. Beloved, pursuing unity with your spouse. If you're stuck, come see me. Come see Pastor Bill. Come to the BCCM. Better yet, if you even think you might be stuck, 
be proactive. My experience is that many couples wait too long before they get help. There's always hope, no matter what season you're in. Don't get me wrong, but oh, how much can be caught if you get it in the beginning. There's nothing wrong with saying we need help. So get help. Pursue unity with your spouse in the home, and you will bless many. Second one, we see unity and diversity in the exercise of gifts in the body of Christ. I love this, 1 Corinthians 12. We are all members of one body. Maybe you're a pinky or, a, or maybe you're the nail on a pinky. Maybe you're the hangnail on the pinky nail. And you just remind us, ow, something's wrong. Whatever it is, we need you in the body of Christ. We are not, as I say at Halloween, the Adams family. There are no things Hands, dismembered, disembodied hands, running around doing stuff. We were part of Adam's family, amen? But now we're in the second Adam's family. We're in the family of God, and we're all connected, and we need everybody. And it takes time to figure out your role in the body of Christ. And sometimes some people serve, and you just, man, you get gung-ho, and you're like, yes, I want to do this and this and this. And you try and get somebody along, come on over here, guys. And, and you find other people are like, no. And, and, and then you're like, okay, okay, let me come over here. Hey, Uncle Wes, Auntie Joyce, can you guys do this? And then you find that they would never say it because they, they're always super helpful in everything they do. But uh, you, you, come on, guys, come do this. And you, no. And you're like, oh. And you get discouraged, and you can feel like a deflated balloon. You're like, I'm trying to serve. And sometimes what you're, what you're sensing at times, you may be sensing just sluggish believers, but at other times what you may be experiencing is different gifts. You might be asking a knee to go do handstands, right? <laughs> you might, you're like, wait, it's just impossible. It's just not going to work. I can, I can help you with the handstand, but I can't do it because we're all different. Sometimes you're just rubbing against different body parts, and we're all different. We all have a role, and it takes time to find that role, and I want to encourage you. I want to exhort you. Experiment. Find somewhere to serve, and if that doesn't work out, okay, Find another place to serve. Don't just stop and say, I tried. I can tell you, my giftedness is not necessarily dealing with young children. I don't feel well at it. I don't feel proficient at it. I can tell you who I think does an amazing job at it. I can tell you a few people who do an amazing job at it. But me, with my little children, yes, I, I, I love them to death. Called to be dad. But, but others, I feel like, I don't, know, I don't know, I'm terrified. My hardest speaking engagement is to, to talk to preschoolers every week in chapel. But I also tell you this. At the same time, if there's a need, I'm there. I might not be the best preschool teacher, speaker, watcher, but if there's a need, I'm there, and I'll try it out. And I'll do my best to the glory of God. And I urge all of you, find a way to be engaged. I love Maddie came a few years ago. and uh, Hi, Maddie. She's right there in the middle. I'm going to single her out. 
Uh, Maddie came, and she's like, I just don't know that there's anywhere I can serve. I said, what do you like to do, Maddie? She's like, I like to do this kind of stuff. I said, that's awesome. I would love that. Let's start that. I just don't have anybody to do that right now. And Maddie's taken it. She's started things. She's done the member connect. She's just gone off. She's written things. She's done a fantastic job. She's blessed us, and she's blessed you. Amen. Yes, praise God. Encourage one another. And many more of you can, I could say the same of many of you, and I'm just encouraging you. We all have different roles, different gifts. Take time, find yours, bear with others who are finding theirs. You might say, oh, Pastor Randy, amen, you are not good with children. Yes, amen, but I'm here. Bear with others as they're finding their gifts as well. Unity and diversity in the exercise of gifts in the church. Then we find unity and diversity in the cross-cultural dynamics of the church. The cross-cultural dynamics of the church. This is to say this, the church should reflect its community. The community in which it finds itself. Here we are in Kahului, Hawaii. And I have to say, in large measure, KBC we have done, by the grace of God, a fairly good job at this. We've got uh, Hawaiian, we got Chinese, we get Japanese, we had Vietnamese, but uh, no, Korean, but they moved away. We, we, oh, we do, we, yes, we, we have that. We, have, we get Mexican, we have all kinds of stuff represented here in our local community, Filipinos more and beyond. Praise God, and our, our church in some measure does this. However, I also think we have great room for improvement. I think we have room for improvement, but even more than whatever that improvement looks like, and that's a a different story for a different day perhaps, but even more essential to that improvement is a willingness to lay down our cultural preferences. It's a willingness to lay down our desires for the good of the entire body. When you come to worship God here at KBC, realize you are coming to worship God, here it is, with the church, with the rest of the body. You are coming as a part of the whole, together to worship God with one voice. It's not just me coming to get what I can, but me coming to worship together with you, who I love, to give glory to God. In other words, this begins not when you walk in the door, this mindset. It begins the moment you wake up and you start to get dressed. You start thinking, I'm getting ready to go. I'm getting ready to go to church with my church family. How can I best serve them even now all the way up to the point that I walk in the doors, I sit in the pews, that might impact all kinds of things that you do. But the moment any one of us makes any of this about mainly ourselves, I set myself up or others up for unmet expectations, maybe unrealistic expectations, and disappointment. And so we reflect it in unity and diversity in the church I think we've done a lot, like I said, by God's grace, he has worked in here, and I pray he continues to work more. The last one is we find unity and diversity in our singularity of mission, in our singularity of mission. 
What is our mission? What is our mandate? We find it at the end of Matthew, the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That is our mandate. And so we reflect this in the unity and diversity of our singularity of mission. And what does that mean? All that is to say is a fancy way of saying we have one mission. All of you have a different part to play in that mission. You all have a different part to play in that mission. And this mission does two things. One, it enhances your individuality, and it simultaneously cuts it down. Wait a minute, what? It enhances your individuality, and it simultaneously cuts it down. How does that happen? First, it enhances your providentially placed individuality by realigning your existence with the purpose of God. It realigns, reorients your entire life with the eternal purpose of God. And what am I getting at here? This reminds you that all of your life is worship, including your jobs, including your schooling, including whatever it is you spend Monday through Saturday and Sunday as soon as we are done here doing. All of it is worship. And it reorients it to this eternal purpose of God. Thus, it should enhance our execution. It should enhance what I do. You should ask, my work is sacred. Do I approach it accordingly? You realize whether you work uh, doing whatever it is any of you do at a credit union or working for the county or, or working in finances or and working at a school or working at a preschool or, or construction, anything, That is sacred, sacred work. You say, it does not feel sacred. (laughs) But it is. It is, and you are called to do it unto the glory of God. I want members of KBC to be the best, most faithful workers, honest, hardworking workers, not for our good at KBC, but for the glory of God. There is a sacredness. Paul captures it well in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. It is this reorientation of the self to the eternal purpose of God. It cuts your individuality down as well. So it enhances your individuality where God has placed you, and then it also cuts it down, or at least the Western American individuality. It is God with us. This reminds us that though my work is sacred and though God has a purpose for me in my life, it also reminds me that I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. I exist in relationship to others, and that brings with it responsibilities and expectations. You see, the world says to you, say, high school students, be what you want to be. Do what you want to do. You can do anything. And God says, follow me. Spend your life for my purposes. The adult life says, you do you. Retirement says, 
Live your dreams, pursue your desires, and millions of people will slip into eternity to find they have wasted their life and spent it on that which does not ultimately profit. Beloved, your life is not your own. It cuts our individuality down as well. It belongs to God, and you are a part of his people. And so let us live, and you're going to hear this a lot, in 2021, let us live in a way with renewed zeal and emphasis and rigor and self-denial. Let us live in a way that reflects this unity and diversity in new ways. And I want to challenge you now. Just be praying. God, what in my life do you want me to cast aside so that I can run this race? What is slowing me down? How can I engage more? Let me say, here I am, send me. And let's do this in such a way that the world would say this can only happen by the power of God. Now, I'd like to close and end with my first application point. Receive it and revel. I'm going to ask for your participation. I'm going to invite you to stand. So stand, if you would. And I'm going to invite you to sing with me. We're going to sing it a cappella. We're going to use our voice. Uh, that, Nick always reminds us, is the best instrument. We're going to sing the first verse of this famous Trinitarian hymn. And maybe sing it with new gusto, perhaps, as we wind down our time. Ready? And I'm going to turn my mic off because I don't want to ruin it. I'll, I'll be singing with you though. Ready? One, two, three. Father in heaven, as we just joined the angels' chorus from Revelation 4, you are holy, 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 merciful and mighty. We thank you for this mercy delivered to us, displayed at the incarnation of Christ. May we receive it by faith, tasting the joy of forgiven sins, walking in the Spirit, unto life everlasting. Would you do this, we pray, in our hearts today, such that we might have, and our whole community might have, a Merry Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And now is a time of invitation. I'd like to invite you, if you'd like prayer for or about anything, I'll be through these doors to my right and your left. I'd invite you to come. I'd love to pray with you. Otherwise, let us sing our praises to God. God bless.